This is the best, most fun I have ever, ever, ever had on a podcast. This is a hit. I'm Jesse Cole, your host of Business Done Differently, where we get to meet successful people who look at business differently, and we get to know them in a different way. When we approached the checkpoint, he gunned it, and uh, one guy ran up and threw a spike board across the road. Another guy's running behind us, shooting his machine gun in the air. And now this time, they don't come up to the car politely and ask me to get out to search my stuff. Guns are drawn, they're out, I'm out. They stuffed me into a hut. So they didn't even really react to anybody else in the car. I was the only non-African in the car. They forced me down onto the floor of a hut, and the guy's screaming at me. Well, that's a great lesson for business leaders, because as a manager, an owner, a president, it's not automatic that people are going to follow you. You have to get respect and they have to believe in what you're doing. And I think a lot of managers think because they're the manager, you have to do what I say. Well, no, you need to leave them. No one wants to be managed. Today on Business Done Differently, I'm joined by Eric Severson, who may be the biggest adventurer we've ever had on Business Done Differently show. He's ridden a motorcycle across the U.S., traveled over 80 countries, he climbs mountains, and he lived with a remote tribe in the Amazon. He is now the founder of Innovative Educational Services, which is a language entrepreneurial coaching service, and he's sharing stories as a writer and a speaker in the big book coming out in July, Ordinary to Extraordinary. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jesse. I've, I've listened to your show quite a few times, and I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> well, beautiful. Let's go with our first segment then, excited or scared. So Eric, what has got you excited or scared today? Actually, Jesse, I just, I just, I have a new person I'm coaching, and he originally hired me to help him with one interview, and he ended up getting the job, and he, he liked our few sessions together before the interview so much that he's hired me full-time, or full-time once a week. And I'm really excited because he's a super, super smart guy. He's, uh, English is a second language. He's working in an IT world in the United States. And I think he's going to be able to go to a whole new level with a few simple tech things. So thinking about him is one of my most exciting things right now. Excellent. So obviously jumping into the coaching, and that has become a big part of your role now. But I want to go into literally the adventure and how it started. So I want to go into a segment called Start Me Up. I'm fascinated, Eric. How did you start this crazy adventure that you've been all over the world? I, I just followed. I, I followed doors that were open to me. The, the first one was riding my bicycle. I wanted to ride from, I grew up in Washington State, and I wanted to ride down to California. And, and I'm, I'm 16 at the time, and my parents let me go with a guy who was a little bit older than me. He could make it only halfway because he, had, he was in the uh, Marine Corps Reserves and he had to report for duty. And so I, I rode the last week of, of this trip at 17 years old now or 18 and alone. And I really discovered that being out there and meeting people and being nervous about going into a town at dusk when I don't know where I'm going to sleep is a really great feeling. And um, there was so much more than was it, what was in my backyard. I wanted to see more. And in the end, between adventure travel and business that's taken me to over 80 countries. And, and I'm not done yet. There's still a lot more I want to see. So I want to dive into this. So 18 years old, you get on your bike and you just start going to different towns. I mean, how far did you start going at, at only 18 years old? Yep. So um, my, we, we started in Tacoma, headed south. My buddy Yogi, he made it to about the Oregon-California uh, border. And, I, and I, my goal was to get down to my sister's house in Santa Barbara. And I had two weeks to do it. So it was just heading down along the coaster road and meeting people along the way, riding with them for a little bit, riding alone for a little bit. And one, one kind of really pivotal time during this that changed kind of a direction of my life a little bit was I was 
I stayed at these hiker biker camps that were a dollar a night if you're walking or on a pedal bike. And so I go to one of these camps and he says, well, the hiker biker section is full, but I'll let you stay at one of the regular camps. There's some in the back that are still open. Go ahead and head, head back there. So I head back there. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm just 18 years old at the time. And I'm setting up my fire. I've got a hot dog roasting. All of a sudden, I hear just this thunderous roar coming towards the campground. I hear them idling at the, at the start for a little bit. And then this this huge group of bikers, and they all had the same skull, red and yellow patch on the, their back, and they were hugging and high-fiving. And it was probably 15 or 20 bikes in a big van, and they get out, and they're, they're, they're dancing before they're even off their bikes. And, and it ended up to be a, a, a motorcycle club. They'd obviously had a long <laughs> ride. And I ended up hanging out with them for the whole evening and late, in, late into the evening and seeing how they reacted, you know, creating their own rules, just living themselves, the, 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 the play fighting, the, 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 the great discussions, the big giant bear hugs beyond what you normally see was really inspiring to me. And that, that was actually the first day I wanted to get a bike, a, a Harley Davidson. And uh, it led me into a career 20 years later where I, I work with bikes often. So you joined a biker gang pretty much. Uh, I didn't. I actually <laughs> I hung around with quite a few of them. And I've ridden a lot, a lot, a lot of miles with some pretty rough people. And oh my gosh, it was a, it was a great experience. And one of the things I love about it is because you're abs like if you're in the clubhouse of an outlaw bike club, there's no one going to save you other than, you know, you're responsible for yourself. So you're defined by your own actions. And I really like that being having to be 100% responsible for your own actions. Mm -hmm. And also, because people are willing to have justice served right then and right there. If, if you bump into somebody at a fraternity party, for example, and both people say you bump me, no, you bump me, <laughs> you bump into somebody with a ball peen hammer on his belt, you both say, excuse me. And I, I'm sorry, it's, it's my fault. No, it was my fault. So you're arguing over who can be the most polite. Even though if it gets down to it, things get really serious quick. Oh. And I like that. I like that seriousness, that edge. So I'm fascinated by this because obviously it's been a, a great story for you. But, you know, getting the travel bug, obviously you started taking the motorcycle, you started going around the coast. And then how did it hit you? And, you know, I'd love to hear some more of the stories and the lessons that you learned because, Eric, I feel so many people don't jump out of their comfort zone. They're so just scared. They want to stay where they are. And it sounds like you've really, you know, tipped that on its head and said, you know what, I'm going out there. I'm going to do things. Oh, absolutely. And the fear is a really big part of it, Jesse. I think one of the most important things that's happened in my life is having to overcome fear over and over and over again. So the motorcycle was one thing. Uh, another, I hitchhiked from London to Zaire. Now that's the Republic of Congo. So um, I landed in, this is again when I was, I was 20, just 20 years old. I mowed lawns to pay for this. Nobody, no entitlement at all, but I wanted to get to Africa to see what it was all about. I, I, Mowed lawns for eight months, bought a ticket to London, stayed at a runaway shelter my first night, hitchhiked south, got to Gibraltar in Spain, and um, then took a boat across to Morocco and ended up working my way all the way down to um, Zaire, which is, you know, like I said, the Congo. So during that time, I walked huge sections of it. And sometimes I'd walk 60 miles in a row. And when it starts to become dusk, I have no idea where I'm going to sleep. I'm approaching a small village or a town. I don't know what these people are going to think of me. And I was so nervous and so scared as I approached the town. And inevitably, people would be so nice. And not everybody was. I had really, really gnarly things happen to me with somebody threw a rock at me. Somebody elbowed me in the eye and ha I had a black eye for two weeks. Guy pulled a knife on me. So really you know, serious things happen. But for the most part, wonderful things happen. When I overcame that fear, got in there and met people who would help take care of me. And in business, when I'm approaching a big meeting, sometimes I get that little 
ting of nervousness as I'm approaching the room? Uh, are my hands going to start to sweat because I'm so nervous about this meeting that I want a particular outcome from? And then I just take a deep breath and I say, you know what? This is exactly what I felt in Africa. And almost every single time it worked out perfectly. I've had a gun in my face. This is no big deal in the big picture. And it's always come back to make me feel at ease and make the meetings go way better. You know, I want to be fair to just let the, you had a gun in your face. You have to elaborate a little bit. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm going from Benin to Nigeria and I had to take a, a shared cab to get across the border. So it was me and six people stuffed into this small little car. We get to the border and the border crossing alone was absolute nightmare. Just, it was just plywood maze with mud everywhere with people trying to get bribes from me. The guy, I have to fill out a declaration form of how much money I'm bringing in, et cetera. He stole 50 bucks from me and and that was a big deal because I was only spending 50 bucks a month. I only had 200 total left. Um, then we get through the border and I think, all right, my bad day's done. Um, and remind me to say something else about a bad day, but my, I think my bad, bad day's done. Then 150 yards later, there's a checkpoint. We stop, they come out, they make me get out, they search all my stuff. Then we, we go on a little bit. And a mile and a half later, there's another checkpoint. They stop, they search me. So this happens num a number of times. So then finally, we're approaching another checkpoint and the taxi cab driver and the other passengers start arguing vehemently in a language I don't understand. They're yelling at each other. And I realized what it was about when the taxi, taxi cab driver basically said, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm not stopping. When we approached the checkpoint, he gunned it. And uh, one guy ran up and threw a spike board across the road. Another guy's running behind us, shooting his machine gun in the air. <laughs> and now this time they don't come up to the car politely and ask me to get out to search my stuff. Guns are drawn. They're out. I'm out. They stuffed me into a hut. It, so they didn't even really react to anybody else in the car. I was the only non-African in the car. They forced me down onto the floor of a hut. And the guy's screaming at me in now English in Nigeria. The common language is English. And wow. I've been speaking bad French for a month and a half. <laughs> and so I answer him in French, in bad French. So he thinks, I'm, he says, now I'm a spy. Why don't I speak English with me? Uh, literally snarling, sticks the end of the gun inside my mouth, yelling at me that I'm a spy. Why didn't we stop at the checkpoint? And, and in the end, he took my tent. That was his bribe to let me go. It took about an hour of me. But, it, but again, that fear of, of being paralyzed almost with fear and getting through it um, came back in business. Actually, two, two months later when I was in, in, in an interview, I was becoming paralyzed with fear, walking towards the door of this interview of a job I really wanted to go to Japan and from Green River College, which was awesome. I was totally scared going into an interview and I was kind of becoming paralyzed. My hands were starting to sweat and I realized, you know what? I really want this job, but in the big picture, it's not that big of a deal. Two months ago, I had a gun in my face and I took a deep breath, relaxed, went in and had a great interview. And I really think, because I was even, I was getting so scared that I couldn't even think straight. I was, I was losing my thoughts and taking a deep breath and rem reminding myself, what real fear is really made that seem easy. And just to kind of close up the, the Nigeria story, in the end, uh, a guy in the cab took me to a friend of his. He, he said when we got the, to Nigeria, to Lagos, he said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to go to the bank, exchange some money because all my currency had been taken for bribes, exchange some money and get out of Lagos as quickly as possible. And he just shook his head and said, today's Sunday. The banks are closed. If I don't take you home with me, and I haven't been home in five years, he said, <laughs> If I don't take you home with me, you'll be dead before morning. <laughs> and uh, he pawned me off on a friend he also hadn't seen for five years. And, and the friend welcomed me in. I spent three beautiful days uh, with this friend in Nigeria, in Lagos. 
telling stories with his family, eating almost all the time. And so in the end, it worked out. And that was the start of one of my lifetime philosophies that things work out. No matter how bad something seems, something good is going to come of it. You know, I love that philosophy. But, you know, I thought I was crazy, Eric. The, the sense if, if I get a gun in my mouth, I would say, you know what? I'm going to hold off on traveling for a little bit. But it sounds like it didn't slow you down at all. No, not at, not at all. Actually, I, I went to Thailand and I fought Muay Thai out there. I thought I was going to fight for two years, but uh, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And after seven months, they weren't getting any worse and I was getting not much better. So I, I, I left after seven months. But yeah, I fought Thai, in Muay Thai in Thailand for seven months. That was a good what, experience. too. What is, what is Muay Thai? It sounds very dangerous. Well, kickboxing oh, um, with using elbows and knees. <laughs> and and did you survive that, but you probably got beat up a little bit. I got beat up a lot and <laughs> I really learned a lot. Um, and, 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 I, and one of the things I realized is I went there to fight Muay Thai, but I also realized that sometimes it's the things on the side that are the most important because the end of my experience of seven months in Bangkok, I realized it was less about the boxing than about meeting wonderful people and things like that. And again, same thing in business. A lot of the meetings we have, the, the, the key objective reason to meet somebody is not always the best thing you get out of uh, spending time with somebody. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, I, Derek, I want to jump in a new segment for you. Lessons from around the world, because you've already shared some in Nigeria and Thailand, but you've been all over. So, you know, what's a lesson from you were in Japan? What's a lesson you learned in Japan? All right. So in Japan, one is that was one of the places that really set me off on a trajectory to do international things, to be in a, a career of international business, relations, mm -hmm. coaching, everything. Um, but in Japan, I learned that trying, even if you're not perfect, if it is good, a good thing. For me, I decided I'm going to go out one evening. I'd been there for probably a month and a half, two months and not speak just alone and not speak a word of English because I thought I was getting pretty good at, at Japanese. Oh my gosh. I made so many hilarious mistakes that night, but it, just going for it when my Japanese wasn't perfect. The kind of funniest thing that happened was I went to a restaurant. I walk in, I say, kumbanwa in Japanese. And I'm kind of proud of myself. She says, kumbanwa. She sits me down. She says something I could tell. She's asking for what I want to drink. I order a beer in Japanese. That was easy. <laughs> so then I didn't, couldn't read the menu at all. So I just am scanning the menu. I just decide, okay, I'm going to point to something I did. <laughs> a few minutes later, she comes out and I roll my eyes. Oh no, this is not at all what I feel like eating. It was a large square plate with raw meat and a raw egg in the middle. And I say to myself, but I'm not going to let her know how stupid I am. And I'm not going to change my order. I'm just going to suck it up and eat it. So I start heading into my meat. I'm eating it. Literally, I put the last bite of meat, the whole plate's empty now in my mouth. And she walked out with the grill. <laughs> I was supposed to cook it. <laughs> oh, man. So you, you, you develop stories probably in every single country that you've been in. But I, I wanted, what about France? You spent some time in France. Oh my gosh. So France, um, people often ask, what's my favorite country? Um, my favorite country changes. It's I, I have so many. Nepal, I love. Thailand, I love. Japan, and many, many I love. But my favorite city is Paris. And for Paris, the, it's, the reason why is just there's a myth of Paris, which is the left bank, you know, smoking cigarettes. And if you just back in the day when I smoked cigarettes, um, reading philosophy books on the left bank. Um, and then there's the reality of Paris, which is some great days, some pessimistic people. And, uh, and you can really choose which lane you want to step into. I think so many people go to Paris and they say, Oh, I didn't like Paris because of, you know, they're looking at the reality of it's cloudy and I've got some pessimistic people in front of me, but there's also a huge beauty, which is the myth of Paris. And as soon as you step into that zone, all of those pessimistic people will become awesome. Yeah. And so, um, 
Yeah, Paris is definitely uh, one of my favorite places. And it's one of the places that I had time to think. And that was uh, really important. I think everybody needs to sometimes just take time for themselves, get away from the fast lanes and take time to think about the important things in life and business. It's so important. You talk a lot of the greatest leaders, you know, Bill, uh, Bill Gates did think weeks where it actually take a couple weeks just to think about what he wanted to achieve. And it's about creating space. So that sounds like you had that in Paris. The last lesson from the world I want to go uh, Amazon, you were with a remote tribe in the Amazon. What did you learn there and how did you get and end up there? Okay. So first I'll say how I got there. So I did anthropology is what I studied at UCLA as an undergrad. And I went down for three months with them and I lived with a tribe a little bit closer to the coast. And then for graduate school, I went to the university of Virginia also studying anthropology. And so this time I went way deeper into the forest. I had to get permission to enter this small section, no huge section of the Amazon because it's protected for the Indians uh, to save them from exploitation and also diseases and stuff. So my, my shots record is pages and pages long um, for heading down there. So then I, but I, I, it's just me going, the school didn't set this up. I I'm going in solo. So I find a ride on the canoe. Somebody paddles me a week into the forest. Then to get deeper into the territory where the Indians are, there's a little checkpoint. And this is on French Guiana on the border of French Guyana and Suriname on the Moroni River. Um, and then this doctor once a month goes deeper into the forest to check on the Indians for to help them with medicine. And he happened to be leaving the next morning. So it's me and this French doctor with an, a, a Wayana Indian, that's the name of the tribe. Um, we go up another number of days into the forest and he we hit this village he asked the Indians if I could, the chief, if I could stay. And he, he said, fine. And, and it was just a beautiful day that I arrived there. There was something called the Ta'akai going on, which is a big celebration where they, they all, some villages get together and um, they drink this drink where the old women chew up manioc and then spit it out and it ferments and becomes a mildly alcoholic. So they, they basically, a Ta'akai. <laughs> sounds, del- sounds delicious. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's pretty, if you don't think about it, it's really good. Once you start thinking about it and, Chewing the pulpy kashiri, it's called. And, and this Ta'aka is going, so I got to meet everybody in the village. So now, the, uh, I'll, I'll get to the big lesson I learned in a minute, but something funny and offshoot is, so I brought seven pairs of boxer shorts up with me. I figured it's a nice big round number for the days of the week, and even though the days of the week don't matter for them. The doctor had told me that personal belonging doesn't really exist among the Wayana. So the next day when I woke up, I have I'm one pair of boxer shorts that I'm wearing, and I see six Indians wearing boxer shorts. <laughs> and uh, so they wore them for a few days and got tired of them, and they kind of disappeared. So I had one pair of boxer shorts for three months. <laughs> but, so, but so the lesson I, is only bring one pair of boxers. It's all you need, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And but one of the lessons I learned was the chief. The chief has no executive authority. He can suggest things, but nobody has to listen to the chief. They're a really egalitarian society. Mm. And uh, older days, when the chief wanted, thought that they should go to war with a neighboring village, he would literally pick his bow and arrow up and walk towards the village. If people thought it was a good idea, they'd pick theirs up and follow him. If not, he would die alone. And, and th- those are stories I was told while I was, while I was down there. But things I did see were I'd see the chief literally pick up his little you know, makeshift hoe, walk out to their slash and burn garden and start weeding it. And people would think, hey, that's a great idea. Pretty soon you've got the whole village out weeding the garden because mm-hmm. the chief started first. He didn't tell them to do it. He started doing it first and they followed. Well, that's a great lesson for business leaders because as a manager, an owner, a president, you know, it's not automatic that people are going to follow you. You have to get respect and they have to believe in what you're doing. And I think a lot of managers think because they're a the manager, you have to do what I say. Well, no, you need to lead them. No one wants to be managed. And it sounds like that's a pretty interesting way of looking at the culture. So a great chief 
is being followed, but it's not mandatory. Jesse, you nailed it. And I think there are a lot of complaints about uh, millennials. Um, and I've had my own complaints about with millennials. There were certain times when I, I had to have, have to hire three or four people who didn't make it past their probation. Um, mm. And then I realized something that I was part of the problem. Mm. I was kind of telling them what to do a little bit. I wasn't including them into the why, which is kind of hot phrase now with Simon Sinek. Um, and, and, I, and I realized they could have been so, the, even the people who didn't make it past their probation, some of them, I think, had the ability to do really well, but they didn't click with my leadership style. Mm -hmm. And so now I very much more try and lead by example. I try and include the why into what a task that, that, that that's given. And it's really seemed to help a lot. Mm, we see that with our teams. I mean, everyone is between 22 and 27 years old. And what's happened is it's empowering them. If you let them make the decisions, you give them the ownership, you know, they're going to feel entitled, not entitled, but feel part of it. And I think that's the thing. So many managers got it wrong. You know, the people won't work for you. You know, it's, it's the other way around. Managers often think that literally the people work for them, but you as a manager or leader, you work for your people. And uh, so I'm really intrigued by that. So excellent. All right. I want to jump into the book because I'm, I'm excited about Ordinary to Extraordinary, probably one of the best titles of a book. But you have a quotable that says, love the life you live. Freedom is taken, not given. Live an intentional life. We ordinary people can live extraordinary lives. You have it on your website. You have it on Twitter. Explain to me, come on, some practical ways on how people can go from ordinary to extraordinary. All right. So um, first, I kind of got the idea from Elon Musk's quote, I believe it is possible for ordinary people to choose to be extraordinary. And I actually was using the ordinary extraordinary before I saw his quote, but his quote really, really fits in with that. And, and I love it. And what it is, it's not accepting your position um, and, and thinking this is what I've been dealt. I think we've we, we are all given, we're, we, we've got God-given talents that a lot of people just don't find because they don't really dig deeply enough. Um, and listening, letting people say you can't do it. I think it is so easy for people to get to accept the idea. If somebody says you're not good at this or you can't do that, they, they kind of accept it. And I've done in my life, I've forged the path I've had by breaking down barriers my dream school, I was a pretty bad student growing up. I clicked in 11th grade and really wanted to do something big. And I decided then I, was, I went from C minus average to an A average. Then I, I decided I wanted to go to UCLA. And so, all right, I can do anything I want, right? So I applied to UCLA and guess what happened? They rejected me. Mm -hmm. And I could have said, you know what? All those people who said I couldn't get in were absolutely right. So, okay, what am I going to do now? Because my dream's not going to happen. Screw that. I went to Green River College, a community college for two years and studied like a monster and got into UCLA two years later. And that, that, that's one of the things that people can choose. It's going to take work, which is great. Some of my fondest memories are studying till the wee hours in the morning because I had a goal. I had a vision that a lot of people said I couldn't make and, and, and I did it. And it was a choice. Now, it sounds a lot just, you know, having persistence and grit. But I mean, are there other things that you can say? Because very easily someone, you could just say, hey, you know, keep working. You know, if they, they tell you no, keep pushing through. And I believe in that patience, per, uh, persistence and perseverance. But what else? You know, obviously the book is sharing your journey. What else have you seen to go from that ordinary to extraordinary? Uh, I, I think a big, big part about it, and this seems kind of uh, counterintuitive, but it's helping people. Um, I have found that if I try and work really hard for a selfish goal, it's 
a lot of work and I can make that goal. However, as soon as I start helping other people, um, it's, it's really wild. It's almost like a magical formula where good things start happening back to me. Mm. And so I think just putting the focus off of directly yourself and really pushing other people and helping other people, um, comes back and, and helps you succeed as well. How do you focus on that in like a given day? Like I want to dive into this because I think we talk about this always helping other people and our name of our company is Fans First Entertainment. It's focused on the fans. But how do you do in your life? You focus on others as opposed to your own personal gain. Oh, yeah, definitely. So one one thing that just happened at a seminar I was at, um, we had a, a little workshop idea. And um, I was working with a, a person who had a, an, an idea for a, she was in a call center. That was what her, her main job was. And in this little exercise, we were supposed to dream about what uh, we would want to do in a five-year period. And so she had this idea for a company that she could start. And it's a company that would have absolutely almost no initial investment, very little overhead. And so I, I told her after, after the little workshop, I said, Hey, do you know what? If you want to, I would be happy to work with you. Um, not for money, um, just to help you get to, you know, a certain stage in this business and help this business be created. Her position was so unique that as I helped her, a lot of the things that I learned working with her and her unique problems really translated into some really big customers that I have. And I helped them with their really big problems, looking at it from a more simplistic approach that I would have never have found if I wasn't helping her at a really ground level on a really ground level issue. No, I love that. I love that. Now, obviously a big education background. So I wanted to go into different strokes. strokes. And I think business and education kind of go hand in hand a lot. But, you know, you've got an educational background. You taught in Japan. How do you think about education differently than most people? Oh, huge. I, one of the reasons, so I I, I was in education for a long time. I taught English as a second language in, 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 like you said, Japan and Thailand and France. And, and in, in my last one was at UCLA extension, um, teaching English as a second language. And I love education. Um, then, um, just because I, I wanted to make more money um, to live in Los Angeles and support my family in Los Angeles, went into business for over 10 years. And then I realized I wanted to get back to giving more. Um, I knew it would be in the area of education, but what could I do differently? So I decided, I, I realized all of these business strategies, success formulas, Grant Cordon, Tony Robbins, Brennan Richard, um, all of these great people that I've been studying. And then you get into the classic Napoleon Hill type stuff, yeah. um, the magic of growing rich or all these great things, uh, thinking big, all of these great ways of thinking I didn't see being applied to education. So that's one of my main goals is to use all of the entrepreneurial success formulas, um, the funnel, all of the business strategies, thinking big, for example, in education. And the results have been absolutely mind blowing. I'm blown away by this because I feel like the education system has to change dramatically. And as, as I'm getting ready to have my first kid, I'm not excited about them going through the regular education system. So how are you building or this entrepreneur spirit into education? Like, what are some of these ideas? Yeah, so one of them is a company, a smaller section of innovative educational services, which is ESL Bootcamp. And it's it's a lot of students are getting good English in classrooms, but they're not learning how to succeed when they come to the United States. I've seen really smart students come to the United States from Japan, from Argentina, from wherever, and not succeed because they 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 know might know the, the English at the level they're in. But for example, in Japan, there's a hierarchy between teacher and student. So when they come over here, 
and they don't really approach their teacher because of the hierarchy difference. They're quiet in class because of the hierarchy difference. Their teacher doesn't give them a, a good participation grade because they think they're not interested. Mm. No, the Japanese person is doing what they think is a perfect Japanese student, but it's not matching the cultural context they're in. How do you make friends in English? That's that, that's another one. For also for business, one of the guys that I just recently coached for the job interview. When we were talking in our initial interview, I said, because <clears throat> he, he had had some high level interviews that he didn't get the job at. And I asked him a little bit about that. And I said, did you bring up your accent at all during the interviews? And he had a very strong accent. Fully, he finished grad school in America. So his English is perfect. However, his accent is, was really strong. And he said, no, I kind of try and pretend it's not there. And I said, that's exactly what you should not do. You should make it, you should highlight your accent. Although you hear me speaking and you think you might think that I don't understand everything you're saying, but I understand everything. I do have an accent. That's true. But what comes with that is a way of understanding beyond just the American vision of what, what's IT here. Um, I worked in, in Thailand for his case. So he goes, I can bring all of that way of thinking into this setting. And and it really helps not highlighting a difference rather than trying to hide it. Hide it. I love it. And I love it. you can say your passion from it. And I love it. Obviously, it's something you're trying to grow. You know, how are you trying to grow this? I'm, I'm intrigued because like any business, you know, you need to put a lot of effort into it. And we'll go into the find your yellow tux lightning rounds. But how are you growing this, this business? One of the main things is actually I've uh, become more active on LinkedIn recently, and it's been a really good ride. I, I was at a business conference not too long ago, and there was one, one speaker who was talking about LinkedIn influencers and a good buddy of mine, David Brownlee, who's an, a rising star. He actually just, I heard, heard him speak at a, a conference a few weeks ago, um, and he's also doing some things for LinkedIn. And so I've, I've made some really good contacts in LinkedIn. And usually it's not the direct contact that I've made that has come to something. It has been, I've been talking, somebody might comment on something I say, or I comment on something they say. Um, we, we link up and they usually know somebody who needs exactly what I have for, yeah. So uh, Noah Schechter, for example, is somebody who has really latched onto some things I do, connected me with some people in Israel um, who really need exactly what I offer. And so that, that's been a, a really good piece. Word of mouth is also a, a great, but of course, to scale, it's got to go beyond that. <laughs> yeah. And I'll jump on that. I haven't shared on this show, but LinkedIn has been by far my biggest game changer as far as speaking appearances, connections. I never thought I've always been a Facebook, you know, guy, but LinkedIn, I'm very, very impressed. And I think it's because of the ease, you're in the right platform in a business sector. I mean, whenever I put post videos and stuff in connections, it's amazing. So, uh, you know, business leaders that are listening, LinkedIn, if you're not on it and actively using it, I think you're missing out. So thank you for sharing that, Eric. I certainly appreciate it. All right, we are going to jump into some find your yellow tux lightning rounds. And I really am fascinated how you've become a successful by standing out. You've obviously done some amazing things. So I want to start first one on the mirror moment. I want you to go back to a time when you realized something frustrated you about the current business you were in and you decided to change paths. All right. So I definitely was in, I was teaching and I found my life passion. Everything is great. Life is perfect. I'm, I've just had my first kid. I'm teaching at UCLA Extension. I love my colleagues, love my students. Life is perfect. Then I was punched in the face with a hard reality that I couldn't support a family in Los Angeles with the salary I was making. And I, I didn't know what to do. For the first time in my life, I had to make the practical decision not to follow my passion, but to do something different. So I went into business 
And to my surprise, I absolutely loved it. Thrived in business for 10 years, and it has made me a much more well-rounded person. And now things have come full circle. Well, like I said, I'm applying those business strategies into education. Oh, I love that. It's it. Don't follow your passion sometimes. And I think that can actually work out well. And it was going to this next section, small bets. You know, I believe everybody has to take small bets to be able to grow their business. What are some that you took when you eventually jumped from education more into business? One of them. So I, uh, the first thing I did is I created a motorcycle touring company. So I kind of still did my passion, which is <laughs> I, I liked riding bikes at the time. I knew I liked international people. So I created this motorcycle touring company. So international people could come over and and ride um, with me here. And I, I kind of tried to blend the, the passion and something to make money. And it didn't always work perfectly at the start. It was a struggle to get, get people, yeah. but I kept persisting and um, showed why I was different because I tried to provide a really authentic um, experience to these people so that they could come over and, and um, live their dreams. You nailed it right there. Why you were different. And I think so many companies don't really do a great job of clarifying that. And that's that's amazing. I love that. And you know, we talked a little bit more about how you had to get uncomfortable. You know, obviously a lot of different things you got to get uncomfortable when you're growing. So I love the segment called comfortably uncomfortable. You know, how would you advise someone to break their routine and get uncomfortable? It's not as easy just saying just do it. You know, what would you advise? Okay, this is easy because I got I've stolen stealing up from Tim Ferriss. <laughs> in in one of his books, I think this is the the four hour work week, he talks about something as simple as this. Become scared. Find somebody, look for somebody in a cafe, for example, and go up to them and find a reason to, to talk to them for absolutely no reason, whether it be asking directions or whether it be um, just, you know, asking how their day is. And then uh, you'd be surprised also, he, he uses the example of for to hone your ne negotiating skills. I think we often start to cringe a little bit when we think hard about negotiating with people. So his suggestion is when you're going to buy a $2.25 double espresso, hey, ask if you could have a discount for no reason at all. Yes. And just, it's funny, the first time I did that, I thought it was no big deal. Then I find myself standing in line in Starbucks, tingling, being nervous about asking if I can have a discount off my $2.25 Starbucks double espresso. And <laughs> And I was shocked at how scared I became and then doing it over and over and over again. And I don't care if I get the discount or not. Mm. I just care about getting used to being nervous about it. And, and now I can ask it easy. And you know, the funny thing is about 25% of the time, they actually give it to me. <laughs> I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's actually, I think it's called the Noah Kagan coffee challenge. And I think Tim Ferriss got that the coffee challenge from him and you asked, right. yeah, to ask for 10% off. And I've done that and I've actually taught our staff to do that. And they are so nervous. But what's amazing is it's actually not only getting them comfortable being uncomfortable, but it's teaching the power of asking. And so many people are afraid to ask for things. And if you really want to grow, you have to learn when to ask. And uh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing you that. Excellent. All right. The last segment of Find Your Yellow Tux Lightning Round is the Hello World moment. I'm intrigued by this, but what moment has created the most attention for your brand and your growth? I'm, I, I'm not quite the full Monty like you, so to speak, <laughs> but, um, I, but yeah, I know it's your yellow tux, which is absolutely awesome. Um, I, I do something similar where um, if I go to a conference, I usually wear, or a, a speaking engagement, um, I, I'm usually wearing bright red pants and um, it, I've had people come up to me at the, the I'm talking about the TESOL conference, for example, it's an education ESL conference. So last year, um, four day conference, I wear my red pants and I've got more than one pair so I can wear them every single day, wear the exact same pants every day. At the end of the conference, as I'm leaving the conference, 
in the 20 minutes or so it took me to walk from, I had a booth, to walk from my booth to the after party, four people came up to me and said, oh my gosh, I'm meaning to get to your booth, get back to, but I didn't make it. But I have this question I, I, I want from you or one of them. I'd like to see if you could work with me on, on this. All four of them said, I didn't recognize you, but I recognize your pants. Mm-hmm. I made four contacts that two of them actually turned into really good things because I had red pants on. Oh, see, we need to go into business together. The red pants, yellow tux, we'll start. Yeah, we'll, exactly. And we'll, by the way, I, uh, I, I, I dress up for my podcast interviews, even if I'm no, no nobody's going to see me. It's not video. That's right. Right now I'm wearing a yellow mariachi shirt with a four inch collars, 1970s yellow mariachi shirt, because I try, I try and match what I'm doing. I think I do think that how we, uh, we, we project what we're doing Mm. in more than just our mind. You know, I love that. In the book, The 1% Solution, it talks about it's not motivation leads action. Sometimes action leads motivation. And people that work at home, if they dress up like they're going to work, like it was a woman that wore heels and dressed up, she would be more productive because she put herself in that setting. And it sounds like you're getting in showtime mode as well. Uh, absolutely. You, st- you, you nailed it, Jesse. <laughs> absolutely love that. Beautiful. That is the Yellow Tux lightning round. Now I want to go into a few more segments here. Now that's what I call service. I am fascinated by customer service. I feel like it's something that's dramatically lacking out in the world. We built it with fans first experience. You've traveled all over the world. So I'm intrigued. What are some amazing customer service experiences that really stand out for you? One that kind of pops to mind was an extremely expensive one, and I'm really happy I did it. So this is right at the start of the motorcycle touring company. I've had two or three tours by this point, but I had one guy, single guy, sign up. So these are like $4,000 week-long trips. Um, I had one guy from the UK sign up for a tour, and I had gambled that more people are going to sign on. And in the end, I've got one customer for a a seven-day trip on a motorcycle. And rather than in my agreement, it says we can cancel anytime we want. Um, and I decided, nope, I'm going to do it anyway. So I had myself on a motorcycle with riding with him. I had a van driver with the van driver. I treated it like a full tour with this one guy named Ralph Whitby from the UK. And so I lost a ton of money (laughs) on that one week trip. You know what? That guy ended up coming back two more times, two or three more times. Um, he brought people with him every single time. So in the end, me really going out of my way to give this guy the dream that he signed up for paid back uh, both in, paid back multiple times over. Oh, I love that. What we say here, it's always one fan at a time and every game is someone's first game. And yeah, you understood that because a lot of people would have said, we aren't doing this, but that is, that is outstanding. I love it. Yeah, All right. It, it doesn't ROI. That's for sure. But but again, it's like, you know, future, you need to make what a thousand true fans is what that great article by Kevin Kelly is. You don't need a million people to love you, but if you get a few people to love you, that's where it takes care of the brand. So I love that. Great story, Eric. Now I'm giving you an opportunity for flip the script. So you are the host of Business Done Differently, and you can ask one question to me. All right, Jesse, I absolutely love this. How did you decide on a yellow tux? Okay, beautiful. Going back to 2011. And so we were in Gastonia, North Carolina with one of our teams. And we said, hey, our games are like a show. So every night we're having players dance. We're pieing people in the stands. You know, we're giving do nonstop crazy giveaways like Porta Johns and colon cleansings. So if we're doing all <laughs> this craziness at our games, you know, we need to look the part. So I remember it was before the first game. 
And I called one of my buddies who owned a bridal and formal shop. And I said, I need a tuxedo. You know, I got to wear this for the first game. So he gets me this big black tuxedo with the tails, all PT Barnum-esque. And I wear it that first night and it's 102 degrees. And I literally almost melted in that black tuxedo. And I said, there's got to be a better way. So I searched. I said, you know what? The Grizzlies have some yellow in their colors. Let's look online. So I found brightcoloredtuxedos.com. It actually exists. And I found a yellow tuxedo. I overnighted it, had it for the next game. And from that point on, everyone was like, this is the yellow tux guy. They were taking pictures. You know, it became a thing. Not everyone knew my name, but they knew the yellow tux guy. So now I own six of those. But it started back in 2011. So thank you for that crazy question. Now I now That I is awesome, by the way. I love that. <laughs> I literally wear them every day, Eric. So it's like one of those things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nervous, nerve wracking when you go through TSA at the airport and everyone's looking yep. at you confused. But uh, it's yep. become fun. <laughs> and you know what? You brightened their day up, too. They laugh. You know, they laugh. There's confusion, but usually laughter. And I think if I can bring that, that's a win-win. So uh, thank you for asking that question. Now, actually, I want to go in. I'm fascinated by questions. You know, I think it's the people that are asking great questions. That's where you learn. You know, what are some of the best questions you are asking people these days? Um, one is, this is a pretty big one. Um, do you find meaning what you in what you do? Mm, um, and I've, I'm, a lot of people... I think some people really have that. And so, and a lot of people are going through life thinking, you know what? I've got everything I need. I've got the car I need. I've got, you know, my house is good, but there's what's not there. And, and the people who, then some people are really struggling and they know it's not there and they don't have what they need. So just looking at those three things, I think one of the, one of the main things I'm, I'm having, I'm, I'm asking people is, do, do you find meaning in your life? And um, I asked him to try and explain it to me. And it's amazing how quickly sometimes the light bulb can go off of a small, small conversation about what does meaning mean to them. And the reason that people don't have it really is because they don't really know what it's defined as. Mm. What do you define it as? Uh, I'm going to steal this one. Emily Espahani Smith wrote a book called The Power of Meaning. And she outlines one, how meaning and happiness are different and, and, um, and so she's focusing on meaning. And for her, there are four pillars of meaning, which are purpose, storytelling, transcendence, belonging. So belonging, purpose, transcendence, and storytelling, they weave this sense of meaning for people. So, and a lot, a lot of people could find more meaning if they belong to a club. They could uh, find meaning by having a transcendental experience, which, you know, could be looking at a redwood, for example, or getting their story out. Okay, so it's looking at those four areas that they can find out really be able to define their meaning. Exactly. Beautiful. Love it. Great question to ask. I know I'm going to steal that from you, Eric, just letting you know. It'll, 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 right. start, it'll start a very deep, deep conversation, but that, that's fun. I think so many people have, quite, have conversations on the surface. You know, how's your you know, day? How's the weather? You know, you know Jesse, yeah. I, can I, if I could yeah. pipe in real quickly yeah. on that one. About 20 years ago, I was at a cocktail party. I was bored stiff. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to talk about exactly what I want to talk about. And I don't care who likes it or not. Five minutes later, I'm in a deep discussion with somebody about some book I had read. 10 minutes later, they're telling me about a book that they had read. And I started to live by that, that I'm going to talk about what I feel like talking about. And often it's about the other person. So it's not all about me, but I'm going to talk about a topic I think uh, I, I want to talk about. And it's funny whether it goes to relationships after 
five minutes of meeting somebody. Um, and I've found me- more meaningful conversations by not trying to stay at the surface level. Oh, I love that. Well, it's also very authentic. You're being yourself. If you're just talking about on the surface things, that's not you. And then curiosity, everyone's intrigued by curiosity. Why don't you just let it spread? I, I love that, man. That's great. Beautiful. All right, last three quick segments here. Tool time. Uh-huh. What's the most important tool you have in your business toolbox, Eric? It's going to be my, it's, it's a pad of paper and here's why. Every single morning I make a list of things I want to do and I make a star by the one thing that has to get done that day. And once a week I write down what are all the projects I'm working on and I'll make a star by the one that's most important for the upcoming week. And I write down two things I have to do the next day to, to work towards that. So it's basically list making, writing things down. Yes. in list form. I love that. You actually, most people go like technology, you go pad a paper, but you know what? Simplifying it is huge. And you're going to one thing you have to focus on a day and a week. Absolutely love that. Beautiful, Eric. We are now to favorites. What is the favorite part of your morning routine? Leaning over and kissing my wife on the cheek in the morning and then meditation. I do a guided meditation, um, 15 minute meditation every morning. And uh, that 15 minutes spent on that adds so much more time to my day because of efficiency. Hmm. Now, a question. Everyone talks about meditation. I've always had a challenge with that. Was it hard to get into it or just take kind of a committed focus every day? Well, the best part is I don't care whether I'm in the zone or not. All I'd want to do is it's a it's a guided one from uh, Mind Valley, I think is the name of the, the, the company um, who, who, who did this particular one. And it just has a little section on compassion about gratitude, forgiveness. What's your perfect day? What's the, you know, and then the last part is God's blessing. Just allow God to bless you and give you energy for the day. And, and, and sometimes when I'm doing that meditation, I'm thinking about a project I need to work on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm actually really focused on loving everybody in the world and then thanking God for one particular thing. And then just really buzzing off of the kind of wave state that I'm in in the meditation. So it varies. And I don't care if it's a quote, good meditation or not. Um, whatever's going to come is going to come. And it's usually been beneficial. Oh, thank you for sharing. What about favorite way to unwind at the end of the day? I get to a point where I um, am a little bit too tired to get any really good work done. Um, but I'm not tired enough to go to sleep yet. And then so and I'll usually um, read a uh, I'll, I'll read um, during that period of time. And, uh, it's, it's funny because at the end of the day, I, when I hit that point where I'm, I know, I know I'm only 75 or 80% mental cause I've had a long, long, t- tough day. Um, but I can't wait to wake up the next morning and get to work. Cause I'm so excited to what I'm working on, but I know that I'm going to be inefficient. So I might as well stop. So it's uh, reading for a few minutes at the end of the day. That's great. Now, what about a favorite book that stands out for you? I'm going to go back to, uh, the power of meaning Excellent. by Emily Esfahani Smith. Beautiful. Love it. All right. Last favorite. What's a magic moment? This magic moment. Favorite magic moment that you will never forget in your life. The, the one that pops to mind most quickly, I mentioned that interview that I was scared at, uh, scared of. It was for Green River College and it was a position to go to Japan and, and um, work at a, a brand new college that they were starting in Japan. And I remember I'm, at, I'm staying at my grandmother's house and the old phone that used to hang on the wall rings. I answer the phone and it was Green River letting me know that I, I did get the job. I'm 20 years old at the time. Mm. Um, I did get the job and they were sending me to, to Japan. And I hung up the phone, got on my knees, thank God. And um, that moment really was a, a great thing. And, and, and I, I, I still do that where if, if anything good happens, I, I credit it where it's due. 
Yeah, 100%. And you need to celebrate those moments too. A lot of people just move on. So that sounds amazing. Excellent. Final four, Eric, the final four questions. Every show, first one, what have you done to stand out in business and in life? One is the red pants that I, that I, that I mentioned. And, and, and the, the other one is Ways of Seeing. It's another book, John Berger's book, um, The Ways of Seeing. Any single thing I look at, I try and look at from multiple perspectives. Um, and that's it. Excellent. That's great. Now, what's the best advice you would give to someone to stand out in business and in life? One is um, passion. And I'm going to link that, though, um, with focus. Passion. Have to be passionate about it, but don't get distracted chasing coins. I, I, yeah, on, on one of your interviews recently, I was listening to somebody said um, that get distractions are against success or something to that effect. And yeah, yeah. I see that immigrants. over and over in people all the time. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's the shiny object syndrome, squirrel effect. <laughs> yeah. 100%. All right, final two here. What's the best advice you've received? Take time to think as one and don't let the negative negativity change you. Um, if, if somebody's negative, kind of smile and pass on. Keep, keep, keep going. Don't be sunk by negativity. Great. Eric, and final question, how do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as uh, somebody who's genuine, um, who believes what he does, um, and somebody who, who really pushed the boundaries. That was, that's the thing I think I'm most proud of is um, pushing past things that many people said couldn't be done. Uh, outstanding. Well, you've certainly done that in your life. And I, I think you've pushed the boundaries on the Business Done Differently show. By far, the biggest adventurer shared a lot of wisdom. Eric, absolutely loved having you on the show. How can people connect with you and learn more? So ericsieverson.com slash yellow is a landing page I'm creating for your listeners, Jesse. And on that, they can see some pictures of mountain climbing. Even I got some pictures of the Indians and there are a few other things on there. There's the book offer with half price for uh, for your listeners, if you want. And if, if anybody is at, you know, any of this, um, there's like the social media examiner coming up. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be in red pants. So if anybody sees a guy in red pants walking around at one of the podcast or social media events, it's probably going to be me. <laughs> social media marketing world in San Diego. I'm going to be there. Me too. We'll, we'll definitely get together. Yellow and red will team up. And Eric, again, awesome having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Jesse, I love that you're out there doing things differently. You are a great service to all your listeners and the people who just see you and see you around. Thanks a lot, Eric. Appreciate that. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Business Done Differently. Our goal is simple, to inspire you to think different, have fun, and stand out in business and in life. For more ways you can stand out in your business, visit findyouryellowtux.com and you can get the Yellow Tux Handbook for free with the six steps to stand out directly from the Find Your Yellow Tux book. Finally, a big shout out to Podcast Pilot for producing the show and making all the magic happen. For questions, ideas, and feedback, I'd love to hear from you. So shoot a note to jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.